Hello and welcome to Genre Stop, the podcast where we read and review genre fiction. You're here with Bree, a lover of all things fantastical, and Scott, me, a skeptic of all things speculative. Welcome to an extra special America's Birthday edition. We're sitting in a cozy room with fireworks going on outside, love in the air. I think we didn't say what we were reading last time, right? We kind of just stopped. It was 4th of July surprise. 4th of July surprise. You know what else is a 4th of July surprise? Jesus. Yes. Born in a manger on the 4th of July. And the Declaration of Independence. Take that surprise, England. (laughs) (laughs) So tell them the surprise. War and peace this week. (laughs) Well, no. I added another surprise. Brie is pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) With a space baby. The first... Which is strangely relevant this week, because what we did read was a book called Dawn by Octavia Butler. So, Bree, why don't you give us a little introduction, and then we will get into it. All right. Dawn is Octavia Lee Butler's 1987 novel, the first of her lauded Lilith's Brood trilogy. Lauded Lilith's Brood (laughs) trilogy. I have a hard time saying Lilith, um, but all of these were nominated for... Bree's now looking up on her phone. Okay, we're obviously going to record it. Hugo or The Man Booker. I think it won the Pulitzer for Best Depiction of a Space Sex. It also won won the Tony. It did win the Tony? Yeah, yeah. just imagining what it would be like. Sun? Yeah. (laughs) I can see that. All three books were nominated for The Locus. (laughs) I don't know if the editing will catch that, but that took five minutes to look up. I'm sure it was worth it. If it was, everyone email in at scottandbree at genrestop.com. Tell us what you think about that, that detail. All right. The book follows Lilith Iapo during her time aboard an alien spaceship. <laughs> it opens with Lilith's capital A awakening. Uh, capital A awakenings refer to coming twos after alien-induced periods of deep unconsciousness during which many years can pass while the body ages very little. Uh, side note, little A awakenings just mean like you woke up after you fell asleep after some light alien drugging. She wakes in a featureless room, one in which she's previously been awoken and interrogated by a disembodied voice. Only this time, there's an alien in the room with her. And did you did you think this was the source material for old boy? <laughs> Sometimes I had that thought. You're in a room, you don't know why, someone's talking to you. Right, I never had that thought because an old boy, I, I never thought it was aliens. Neither did she. Well, which was crazy of her. I mean, it was aliens from the get-go. My favorite detail was when she noted that there were, she was the only other English speaker who didn't immediately think that this was aliens. So there's an alien in the room with her. She quickly puts two and two together to figure out that it's aliens that are holding her captive. This seems like a pretty big deal, but then Lilith has lived in tumultuous times. She once had a husband and a daughter, but they died in a car crash. Or, as Octavia Butler would say, an automobile accident. Mm -hmm. She won't call things cars, weirdly, throughout the whole book. (laughs) I never noticed that. So they're dead. She goes back to school. She's about to start like a kind of a rom-com under the Tuscan sun, start rebirth. (laughs) In South America for some reason, right? Wasn't she in South America? Yeah, yeah, she was. Everyone who survives was Uh. below the equator, basically. But... Lo and behold, ruining she and Diane Lane's plans, tensions between the U.S. and the Soviets start rising and result in nuclear winter, plague, mass hysteria, etc. These critical events are the last things that Lilith and the other human survivors who we'll get to later remember. Luckily, the aliens fill in the gaps for her. See, these aliens, the Onkali, you good with that pronunciation? Hi, that's exactly how I do it. All right. They saw what was going on on Earth and decided to intervene. They brought human survivors onto their giant sentient spaceship and, after experimenting on an unlucky bunch, decided they wanted to do what they do best. See, the Onkali are gene traders. Not genes like the cool blue denim pants. If you want to see a science fiction movie about that, it's called Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. (laughs) Pants just fit these four aliens really well. Gene traders. I get it. No, genes like DNA. They mix their genetic material with that of other alien species that they come across during their intergalactic travels. 
And you know what that means, listeners? Weird alien Alien sex sex stuff. That's right, perverts. (laughs) You've written thousands upon thousands of letters to us demanding it, and it's finally here. So lie back, get your favorite hand lotion, close your eyes and imagine. Lilith, late 20s, tall, human, and an alien, about six feet tall, bipedal, faceless, and covered head to toe with pale, meaty, wriggling worms. (laughs) Wait a minute. Not yet. Slow down. Think of your dad crying. Because there's more. That might be working on some of our listeners. (laughs) You see, all these alien trysts are threesomes between an alien, a human, and a third alien. This third alien, the Uloi, is neither male nor female, and it looks like the other aliens, only it has four giant meaty worms emerging from its sides like writhing arms. So um, the music starts, basically, the candles are lit, and it lies skin to skin with the human and the alien, and wraps these sausage-like arms around the naked throats of its partners and then brings all three of them to climax. Uh, Later, it mixes their genetic material to make offspring and baby makes four. Whew! So that's it. But I'm getting ahead of myself. When Lilith is awoken, uh, she learns all about the Onkali and their sexy plans for the human race and furthermore learns that she's been chosen to help awaken other humans to aid in their acclimation to the Onkali, the Onkali sex horrors, and to the ultimate plan. To return to Earth with their Onkali mates and repopulate the planet while living primitive lives in the Amazon rainforest. So Lilith eventually wakens a group, and the rest of the novel deals with the humans in the gang doing what humans do best, denying the reality of their circumstances while trying to rape and kill each other. Oh, and they have alien sex orgies. Eventually, that group is sent off to Earth, and Lilith learns that she has to stay behind on the ship and give birth to the first human Onkali hybrid. So there it is, basically. Through this disturbing tale, Butler explores the material for which she's become known. Gender, power, culture, otherness, societal upheaval, chaos and change. So Scott, time for you to towel off and (laughs) let me know what you think. Um, So I'm just going to start with a big question. It's been said, and... I think, borne out through the books we've read, that science fiction is a genre about ideas. So what do you think is the big idea in this book, and did you find it convincing? I think the big idea is there in some of those last things that you listed off that she's known for. Obviously, gender and Oh, I thought you meant sausage genitals. I mean, so all of those are implied, and some of them are there, but not the central idea. I think it's kind of clear what the central idea and thought is here, which is the tensions between survival and maintaining a certain type of idea of humanness or civilization and what it means to be human and what identity is and what that identity means in relationship to your own survival. I like where you're going with that. I do think is in terms of what it means to survive. Have you read any of her other books? No. I read... Have you? I mean, what... How consistent is this with her interest in other books? In terms of like the you know thematic material, it's dead on. I've read Parable of the Sower and Kindred. I didn't like Kindred very much, and it's weird that that's the one that's taught. You mm-hmm. know, just because it's like a way to teach about slavery, which right. is you know. God forbid you talk about it head on. <laughs> right, right, right. Like it's a time traveler. <laughs> <laughs> but they all seem really preoccupied with this idea of survival. Parable of the Sower is about a post-apocalyptic world. Mm. Um, more like during the chaos than this, which is said. Is it about like rebirth too, a little bit? Oh, definitely. It's about the girl who starts the religion that's going to come to dominate the new world. Mm. I think so. I didn't read the sequel, but <laughs> it seemed like it was going to be successful. <laughs> Things go downhill. Okay. Yeah. Maybe it's about a girl, like a, a megalomaniac who thought she was going to start a religion. <laughs> but they all seem concerned with what it means to survive and... Something I like about the book and about all these books is that it seems like the most important trait when it comes to survival is adaptability. Related to that, yeah, being able to modulate your behavior given a new set of circumstances and moreover being able to stymie delusional thinking. I feel like she's very preoccupied with that and the whole, you know, third act of this book becomes preoccupied with that when they're sent to a fake forest to learn how to survive and the people don't believe they're on the forest, don't believe, I mean, they don't believe they're on a ship, they believe they're in the real forest, and she starts to doubt it and we start to doubt it. 
I feel like a, a big thing that Butler is saying is in this new world order, we need to kind of set aside nostalgia and anger and hysteria and denial and accept what's really happening. So it's not about who's strongest. It's about um, who can adapt with intelligence and caution. I like that reading in that it gives like a nice cohesive theme to something that otherwise didn't seem to work for me. I mean, it's interesting you say this is about adaptability because the whole book, the human tension is it in it is a like deep, really obstinate unwillingness to adapt at all. Rebellion or repulsion from any sort of adaptation when it comes to like whatever this group of people is. I mean, I completely, mean, in, but even you saying that, like, I mean, yes, I think it's about that too. And I, and I think those people don't survive. Uh, no, I mean, because that's, I mean, because it's embodied in Lilith. Lilith is the like primary reluctant adapter. I mean, it's okay. So no, let's get to my pri- Lilith becomes like the race traitor of the book. I mean, people try to kill her because of, you know. Well, uh, yeah, so I mean, okay, so this gets to my biggest thought about the book. I mean, for all the like probably nice things we'll eventually, or I will eventually say about it, I did not buy the central like tension in the book, the narrative tension. And I thought it was kind of <laughs> crazy. I mean, this is primarily a book investigating human emotions and responses to trauma and like what it means to continue but to be different and to change. And I just didn't buy the central narrative quandary which is her like really terrified unwillingness to like survive and have her genes messed with by the oncology. Who cares? I mean, like everyone on Earth has died. She's hung up the whole time, by the way, while she's on a spaceship. Oh, like my kid's going to be half oncology or like it's my kid's not going to be fully human. She, it didn't, she didn't treat it like a new thought. Like if you woke up one day and realized that you're the like last human and you're on a spaceship... That, like, if you start immediately thinking, like, how can we, like, live and not be human? That's, like, the worst thing ever. A traitor to humanity. That's it. I mean, you wouldn't have had those thoughts before. Why would that at all be your central thought? I mean, I agree with you that I also felt like, who the fuck cares if your kids are half alien? You know, right. they're your kids. It'll be fine. You'll live. Right. I also think that maybe just says more about you or about me than about people in general. I can think of a lot of people who would rather die than become half alien. You're not becoming half alien. Your or, children or are. Who would rather die than have sex with an alien? I mean, have maybe. your kids be hybrid? I mean, I think many people are are deeply conservative and and deeply afraid of change. I, yeah, but not of this sort. I just didn't. I still. I just even like they. Her mission towards the end of the book was you are going to be kind of like in charge of the nursery. I you're like you're the first human. We trust you. You need to wake up all these other humans. Who technically, like, they don't know that they're woken up for something crazy. Like, they don't know they've been sleeping for hundreds of years. You need to wake them up and stop them from raping each other. <laughs> like, the very first thing, like, you need to wake up humans and make them work with each other so you don't kill each other. Like, why would humans that wake up and are confused, why would their first impulse be to kill each other? It wouldn't be. None of those, none of those impulses okay. seem right to me. Then I agree with you there. I think I just... I felt like, and I, this gets into character, I felt like she really sacrificed character plausibility in the name of the ideas of her story. Yeah, and that's where I was going with when I said that kind of, that theme works for me when I look at it like that. And if I map that on to the work as a whole, that's kind of a nice post-read gloss that I can read this through. But in the middle of it, you know, it's one of the, it's just hard because that's a theme, but you're in the thick of it and like people are making decisions that are like purportedly based on like actual motivation and such and i mean there were a couple of times she woke someone up and the person like attacked the woman immediately like, tried to rape her. immediately tried to rape the woman yeah yeah i mean it's just well i, I mean but i did like i mean the some of the <laughs> some of the built-in commentary about how men are so, such like violent rapists i actually enjoyed in the book like when she chooses to rape wake people up, she keeps waking women up first, and somebody's like, wake a man up, and she's like, later, later. Well, see, this is where the theme works, because I think all of that is, is was great, and I enjoyed it, too. I think it's hard because that wasn't there, and she was just playing with it in this surreal world. She was basing the brunt of the book's impact upon like us saying, thinking this says something true about human nature. If it wasn't doing that and just saying, I'm going to make archetypes about masculine aggressiveness, the terror that, that like justifiably produces in women like that would work in order to make like these stereotypes or caricatures but I don't think she was trying to caricature anything I, th I think she was trying to write 
as if like this is how humanity acts and this is how they would respond to this type of situation. I mean, I disagree a little bit. I do think I think she's bad at character and I do think she fails at making me believe that these characters would do this in a given situation. Right. But I think that she that her ideas are convincing. You know, I mean the the explanation that the Jadia, the original alien who wakes her up, gives for why human beings won't survive as a species and why they actually need to interbreed if they're going to survive is that human beings have a mismatched pair of genetic chromosomes. Basically, that the fatal flaw in human bodies is, is that humans are both intelligent and hierarchical and that you can be one, but you can't be both. That idea, which I read and I thought, that's interesting, and I liked it, plays out in the novel. So I, I did end up thinking of it as like a book in which characters embody ideas. And not in which a book in which characters are people. I mean, yeah, again, yeah, I like that reading. And I like that section too. And the interesting thing about it is I think that that insight or whatever she's doing with the fact that humans, there's a tension between a t- impulse to hierarchy and intelligence is great, but doesn't require an alien presence. And so what, so what I was kind of balking at was more the way in which humans are like aware of the fact that the whole world's blown up and that there's nothing left. They've been saved by these people and are going to be like sent back down to live that they're responding in this, in this way. I just didn't understand it. For example, when she's thinking about awakening the new people from their sleep, preparing them to meet the aliens and to like learn of their new mission. This is how she thinks about it. How could she awaken people and tell them they were to be part of the genetic engineering scheme of a species so alien that the humans would not be able to look at it comfortably for a while? How would she awaken these people, these survivors of war, and tell them that unless they could escape the Uncali, their children would not be human? Better to tell them little or none of that for a while. Better not to awaken them at all until she had some idea how to help them, how not to betray them, how to get them to accept their captivity accept the Uncali, accept anything until they're sent to Earth, then to run like hell at the first opportunity. And again, it's just going back to that. I mean, what's this attachment to humanity? I don't understand oh, it. Oh, whoa. Okay, I'm sorry. I think you're underselling, or like, you're underselling a little bit that it's not nothing to, to interbreed with aliens who look fucking disgusting and not be a human anymore. I mean, I agree. I would be with the mission. I would totally be an alien collaborator. But, have- but it's not... I mean, that is a thing. Actually, I don't find her her having that thought to be absurd or, or unbelievable. But she doesn't couple it with any sense that there's anything nefarious in the alien's plans, except for that, like, you'll eventually, like, your genes will be a little different later on. But the aliens... It's a strangely conservative the, outlook. There's an extreme power imbalance in their relationship with the aliens. And I think that affects it. Even if the aliens aren't there to hurt them, any time one of the humans gets violent, the alien immediately drugs them or stings them. I mean, the people are not free. Did you read this as an allegory? I didn't as I was reading it, but when I finished, I read... Did you? Um, No, I didn't read anything. But I like that I'm about to be validated when I was unsure at first. But go ahead. When I finished, I read something about it. It might have been the Wikipedia page. <laughs> and it did say that like critics have seen this as an allegory for once slavery was abolished, slaves re-entering. Oh. Or not re-entering society, but entering society as, as free, whatever, free people. <laughs> right. And uh, kind of like, you know, learning to live with their former slavers. That's interesting. I read it. In a, one, it's kind of a shitty of me to like <laughs> think allegory of slavery our first book by a black author, a black female author. I mean, Although I think I... that's an interesting thing about her. You know, she's so, I feel like she's very famous for being like a black woman science fiction writer, but I've, you know, I've read some interviews with her and stuff. And while she definitely deals with race, like that's not her big, oh, definitely that's not, not her big thing no, at all. No, It's unavoidable if, if you talk about it, like a critical discussion of her. Oh yeah, totally, totally. But I don't know if I like allegorized on top of something and if it, Without that context, otherwise I wouldn't have. But regardless, I think it does work. And if that was, you saw that somewhere else, it makes sense. Because, I mean, I read it less as like a transition from slavery to like shitty freedom. As like a transition of like the beginning of the slave experience. Like middle passage. Like taking taking from a cultural home, erasure, 
or like a cultural genocide of whatever you have, like a forced erasure of that sort of culture and an implant, like you can't speak the language. I mean, there, she made a lot of not being allowed access to tools of cultural transmission, a pad and a pen, basically. Mm-hmm. Like she couldn't, she couldn't keep any sense of her own culture. She and had to melt into the new culture. There's that moment when, when she says, you destroyed everything. And yeah. they said, we destroyed everything. Exactly. Yeah. Destruction of the culture you knew. So and I think that, that works much better in the first half of the book than the second when it's about. But I mean, it's there, right? I mean, coerced miscegenation. Mm-hmm. All right, let's get into the sex. I was genuinely repulsed by the sex scenes in a way. And I like weird sex stuff. Do you think, do you think she made the aliens gross enough? For how much? She, yes. Okay. Yes. I thought the aliens were fully gross. I was grossed out by it in just the same way that I'm grossed out by bestiality. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, even if I'm reading a story that's good, like when the dog comes in the room, I'm like, Ugh, you know, new story. I also thought, and I kind of like that she didn't tell us what to think about this, but the book presented a lot of the sex once the other humans are awakened as a type of perverse seduction when it seemed pretty clear that it was rape. You know? And I thought that she really... She really complicated that moment in a way that was disturbing for me. Having sex in the context of this power imbalance. You know, there's that moment where Joseph even grossly randy, Nikanj, uh, took Lilith and Joseph, her mate, her, not her mate, I'm not, you know, her boyfriend or whatever, in a room and Joseph really didn't want to do it and he was repulsed, you know, though it felt good. And then I think Nikanj actually said, like, your words say no, but your body says yes. And then oh, have sex yeah. with him. Yeah, I wrote down no is no, Nikanj. <laughs> <laughs> Digression here. I had one of those, one of my favorite things, an old copy we got somewhere that has someone else's marginalia in it. Oh, I always love that. It had to be, I mean, I'm maybe I'm stereotyping here, a high school girl, just because it's great. It's one of those great marginalia where like they put a big star by a paragraph and then say what it was. <laughs> so, so like the first time that happened, on the bottom paragraph, she put a big star and put... Alien sex, like exclamation point. <laughs> like, oh no. I'm so embarrassed you got my old copy of this book. <laughs> exactly. What do you think Octavia Butler's relationship was to the alien sex? I think it was basically memories of her childhood. <laughs> Ouch. I was wondering if we were supposed to be aroused by the sex. Or I was wondering if she wanted the sex to get close to arousing us enough that it disturbed us. It didn't for me. Although I do think I would be a hearty participant of alien sex were I in that situation because it, did, it didn't feel good to me to read it, but the descriptions made it seem like it felt very good. And I'm sure I could get over the fact that they're gross. Um, well, they did something like messing with someone's like chemicals or mm-hmm. head that they actually made it feel really good. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I they, mean, it was, it was very much... Yeah, really explicitly talking about like as like a drug experience or something, right? Yeah, it was like a drug experience combined with um, the sex scenes in Demolition Man. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Where they put on the headgear. I know what you're talking about. It was kind of like like that, only like there were also like amazing drugs. <laughs> was, was Demolition Man on last night? No, I, that's that's deep in okay. deep in my unconscious. Um, so yeah, I went to ask you, uh, th- did you find the sex like sexy at all? I guess I didn't think of it in sexy, but I mean, maybe this is a compliment to her that she writes so understatedly that it was hard to discern the like authorial intention or thought about what kind of sex this was. Right. But I think that might be intentional. I mean, I wondered this a lot when I was thinking about her writing. I don't think she tells you what to think. Yes. No. And I think there's something like this whole book reads kind of as like a muted nightmare. And that, I mean, in a way it's a big accomplishment, but it takes me thinking about it to like it. Yeah, I, I went back and forth with that as well. And I think I can look at it any number of ways. But if I'm being generous, the one way is I'll think about it like you. She absented herself, her judgment and her critical eye towards it really well. And that kind of made it disturbing and really flat. But like the subtext was there, obviously. Mm-hmm. The, the rape was clear or the unwillingness of some of them. But even Lilith progressively, escalatingly, becomes attracted to Nikanj and wants him to be around. And kind actually of, kind enters, of in an addict way. In an addict way, and, and, but enters into things more willingly. Mm-hmm. So I think that was nice because like the terrifying subtext is there. But if I'm looking at it in a different way, I think that she didn't ground that in the narrative well enough. Like, for example, I don't think she'd really given us enough hints, even like a really subtle level, that there's something nefarious here. Because they are presented as like, 
we saved you and we have our own plans for you, but it did involve your your rescue and you, we want you to prosper. And like, so we understand that, okay, you know, they're kind of coarse, but like, yeah, they were saved. They were going to die anyway. And then on really far into it on 202, um, Lilith is talking to Nikanj and then Nikanj says, most of the Uloi couldn't wait to touch the awakened people. Mm. And then it finally, it says, it might've been better for both of our peoples if we were not so strongly drawn to you. And that was the first time I thought like, okay, she's given us something like really nefarious to hold on to here. There's really something coercive and exploitative. And maybe it's my own fault as a reader here, but I didn't, I didn't sense that darkness really before that. I didn't sense it either, but I kind of liked that I didn't sense it. I did think it was genuinely disturbing once the, once the sex really came out of the shadows, you know, because it was just hinted at for a while, mm-hmm. how pushy and aroused all of the aliens seemed. Yeah, I thought that was effective. It, it, it grossed me out and it pushed me into like, you know, psychologically, it pushed me into the like dirty sex gross mm. or like, but at the same time, like, eh, it feels good, gross place. <laughs> like um, what's your usual go-to for like, oh, it feels good, gross. Tentacle porn. Tentacle porn? Yeah. Ten- <laughs> tentacle hentai. I wish there were more allowances here for like homosexuality. There was no, ex- there was no hint of that for I a book so much too. about sexuality. It was so, I mean, especially for a book that posits a third gender, there, it was so heteronormative that I was wondering like, is that just where feminism was in the 80s? Because if, if this book was written today, absolutely, there would at least be something explaining, oh, but she's attracted to women or... Right. Oh, but, you know, we killed all the gay people. It's fine. You're surviving. That's one where I think we can say blind spot on the author rather than, like, doing something with that Mm -hmm. just because Mm -hmm. of time. I mean, even, like, to the fact that, and again, this kind of gets back to my, that I don't understand the impulses of these humans. Like, who are these humans? But it was assumed and, like, really pressured that, like, once people were awakened that they would immediately take sex partners that a man would have to get with a woman and that, a, oh, you know, someone like walked out of the weird plant pod where he was and like put his arm around a woman. Right. Yeah, right. Like yeah. I'm with you. Like you're my one now. And like, nobody I mean, didn't want to have sex and like, nobody didn't want to have sex. Are you kidding? Or, There's or no like, way you would want to have sex in that situation. It'd be the last thing you were thinking of. Yeah, exactly. And that's again, just character being sacrificed. Right. Right. Just right. like another, occasionally the characters would say things that were, that sounded so forced. Like when Tate, for some reason, just so she could say this, asked Lilith what she was majoring in in college. And Lilith said anthropology. And Tate was like, oh, why do you want to snoop in other people's cultures? Aren't you satisfied with your own? Mm-hmm. I mean, anthropology is not that weird a major. I mean, I just keep going back to that human thing. It just doesn't seem like if you know there are like 400 people that have survived, why do you care? Why do you think about humanity in this way? If it's an allegory and you're talking about like cultural genocide the destruction of a whole sense of self and community. And maybe it's just different times. Like maybe people care about that shit. Who knows? But she was talking, Lilith is here talking um, with her friend and they're talking about a guy named Peter who had tried to attack one of the Uloi. Someone said that Peter was right. Another woman said, Peter, was he right to kill? Was he right to die? And Lilith said, he died human and he almost managed to take one of them with him. And someone else said, so what? What's changed? On earth, we can change things, not here. And then Lilith said, will we want to change things by then? What are we going to be, I wonder? Not human. Not anymore. Like, who the fuck cares about humanity? Who thinks about, like, the fact that who gets anything from being human? Okay, first of all, this makes me feel like you live in an echo chamber. Because I can think, uh, no joke, 50% of the people I know would rather die than than to have sex with these aliens That's and not be human than anymore. The, what is that issue with these, except for Lilith? No, I mean, people would think it was immoral. And I think that that gets to part of that message of the book. I was, I was reading something recently, and it was talking about pragmatism, like in a philosophical sense. And it said that pragmatism is basically a form of pernicious moral relativism. I thought of this book when I read that, that basically you're saying, here you are, take your circumstances... You know, what, what is right is how you survive. What is right is what keeps you alive and keeps humanity to some extent alive. And other people would say, you know, you're being relativistic. No, what is right is what is right. And what is right is not fucking animals, basically. And maybe just the way I th- think of it is that, like, tribalism is never reduced or expanded to humanity. It's always, I mean, it's tribalism about nation or sect or, you know, grouping or ethnicity. Like, no one's ever 
clings tightly to their sense of humanness. That's only because we aren't in contact with any aliens. If you think if we weren't in contact with aliens, there wouldn't be people absolutely saying humanity first, these people, these are freaks, fucking kill them, they're demons. Absolutely. You're not, I mean, think of people or like, think of like the political landscape we live in. I mean, maybe, but I'm also, that's what, that's what I was saying earlier in that it seems strange that you would never have that thought. And then your first thought when being awakened is like, I can't go back to the earth and have my genes changed because like, uh, human integrity, the integrity of the human spirit. I mean, it's funny that I'm arguing for the reverse because I agree with you. I would... I would be having sex with all the aliens on the ship. <laughs> I agree. You know, but like... It's not just a survival I, thing. It's like... I think many people would not and would be morally repulsed by that idea. Uh, and I think you're just hanging out with like real perverts. <laughs> I feel like by the time there's been like a worldwide destructive nuclear winter and you wake up on a spaceship and you see a worm-faced alien that like... <laughs> Whatever moral compass you have is already off kilter and you need to like start a new one because if you're basing it on, you know, something that has relevance well, that's in 1987, nice. Nebraska. But you're a man, so you would wake up and be like, who can I rape? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I don't know why she's waking any man up. It doesn't need to be a man for them to like. Well, that mate. wasn't exactly clear if it, if it could be too like female on Kali that the Ulai was doing it with or. Let's brood on that a little bit. When I first Lilith's heard this, brewed on that. Hey, I was just hoping this was a book about Lilith thinking about stuff the whole time. <laughs> that makes me wonder, Lilith's brood in general, if you're going to read the second one. But first, before we get to that, let's talk about the writing. How do you think this was written? 1987, probably pen and paper. Um, well, she's probably a typewriter, but I feel like she might have notes first on pen and paper and then jump to the typewriter. Or early word processor. I don't know. Can you call her? <laughs> She's dead, Scott. I don't know. I think we've kind of hit on some of the more salient points about her writing. I actually feel like I, I haven't really said anything about her writing. Well, okay, yeah. I guess we've talked about the like the effect of the writing, which kind of boils down to the writing, which is that like detached, which is an effect of her otherwise very plain, straightforward, this, 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 and this. She's not actually going much into even psyche of her main character, from reading those two other books, those two other books have female protagonists who are Lilith. Very reasonable, very cautious. There's a, a reserve to all of them. And so basically, they're all Octavia. But, you know, on, on balance, I, I think I liked the writing. Maybe Coming After Cold Magic had something to do with it, too. There was definitely no demented <laughs> spirit guiding this book. <laughs> there, was, there was no bag lady at the fore at <laughs> writing this book, that's for sure. I think it wasn't... Hmm, so if we're like, all sparse writing is not the same. And so I think, so just by dint of being straightforward, it wasn't always a plus. I think there were some things that were missing from that. Sometimes sparse can get rid of metaphor or simile and still kind of be beautiful when it's like clean cut crispness. And this one didn't really have that, but it did tell a narrative and tell it cleanly, which I appreciated. I mean, just even, like, in terms of, like, the last 30 pages when big things start happening. I mean, like, again, Cold Magic, there are, like, literally 20 pages where she's walking through the spirit world <laughs> and just, like, being assaulted by adverbs and adjectives <laughs> and mountain lions left and right. And this one, like, you know, Joseph dies. It happens. It's there. She moves on. That was there. The sentences are very clean, a little stately. Sometimes you know, they can be clean but also kind of raw in a way that's nice. But here... They were there, and they were uptight or upright, and they were telling a story. I think I enjoyed it. I thought it was a nice way to get this this information, although I thought sometimes it was not as incisive as it could have been. I like that you pointed out, I hadn't thought, that there is very little beauty to the language. That being said, I thought the writing seemed deeply competent, and that's not faint praise. The voice was very grounded, very steady, polished, not in the... Not in the way that, you know, polish means refined exactly, but polish like a, you know, like you polish a stone or something. Like it was clear. I felt throughout the whole book that it was being guided by a steady hand. There was no moment that she didn't feel in total control of. And I do think the book suffers for that control a little bit, but I also think it's that in itself can be kind of a marvel. 
I thought it was structured very well. It seemed like a seasoned writer. The, you know, setting the whole third act in a forest was really clever, you know, in the way that it's like you're reading A Midsummer Night's Dream. It's such a, a very, like a human classical thing to go into the forest and deal with deep moral issues. And it was, and it was great that this forest was actually an artificial forest given to us by aliens mm. to work out our issues. Right. Because like they're actually in control of the whole thing. And the last line of the book really, I felt like, oh no, I'm not just thinking this. This is what she's thinking. She let Nikanj lead her into the dark forest and to one of the concealed dry exits. You know, so it's that lead someone into the forest, into the, you know, land of fairy tales where dark human magic makes beautiful things, but no, to one of the concealed dry exits to something clinical and alien and not natural. There's a coherence there, a roundedness. That being said, I totally agree with you. There's almost no beauty. It's not incisive, I think was your word. And it never surprises you. Basically, the exact opposite of Cold Magic. <laughs> so funny how much, like, yeah, these books, like, just have to come after another one. I know. Like, I mean, I, it's actually like Octavia Butler read Cold Magic and was like, that's... Wait, wait, no. I mean, I guess we should do a, a segment. Oh, how would you do in this world? <sighs> okay, I mean, it's, it gets back to my, one of my main points. I'd do great. There were a couple guys along the way that she met that had just decided to live on the ship for their whole life. <laughs> um, that's what I would do. I don't know. Why do you want to go back to the Amazon? Why do you want to get away? I just, again, I just don't. I just don't get the. I mean, so you didn't buy how disturbing the Uncali were then, because there was, you know, she was deeply uncomfortable around them. I mean, it might be a failure of my imagination and a failure to like read to buy what the book's telling me. Right? Which is that, like, she's uncomfortable. And so I didn't inhabit her discomfort as much as, like, she, maybe she wanted. Maybe because I didn't, like, dwell on what the Uncali looked like. Oh, okay. You know? I did because um, I like to cast characters in books with known <laughs> actors. I had a really hard time matching You know who would be great as Nikanj? Who? Sheila Buff. <laughs> no, that's terrible. I think, um... I think Amanda Seyfried could really hold off. <laughs> anyway. She looks kind of like an alien. We, she's so beautiful. Um, we really line up on how would you do in this world. I would also stay on the ship. Uh, your meals are prepared for you. You have really like great weird sex. Right. There are really tall trees everywhere. You're going to live a long time. There are magical doctors around the next corner. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they. So we'll both be living there. So I guess by the book's logic, you'll rate me pretty soon. So what do you think about rape in this book? What do you think? I mean, there have been like pretty high profile kerfuffles in the genre community world relating to, I mean, <laughs> the line you hear with, with rape in regards to, I mean, I guess it's Game of Thrones, right? Is that like rape shouldn't be a plot point in like a narrative. Yeah, I really disagree with that idea. Well, but... right. But anyway, I mean, but like, <laughs> like reading the tape about you're like, oh, like I wish rape could be a plot point here. It's not even a plot point. It's just like the background hum. <laughs> Of, like, this book, you know? <laughs> and I think a little bit of that is just uh, context and when it was written and where the conversation is now versus where it was yeah, then. Yeah, I think so. Um, to be honest, I, I would kind of take hers. I think in both time periods, rape is a background hum, only sometimes some of the voices in the conversation now pretend that, is it, that it isn't. Right. In a way, as, as if it's a, this real shocker that, that you can't just integrate into yourself and move on. Which is not to say there's not a deep trauma here. I think a lot of... The remove found in a lot of her books, um, and this is difficult to say because she did try to distance herself from from racial, you know, from being a, aligned with a with a racial social progress. But considering when she lived, and considering that she was like very much a pioneer in this, I th I think a lot. She of... wrote most of these in a log cabin, right? <laughs> so funny. <laughs> she died of a rattlesnake. Um, I think a lot of the a lot of the conversation about race and about otherness she has in her books. Seems like she is getting so far from it and muting it so much that it feels like it's this deep trauma that you can't really look at. It's almost more powerful for being like subtext. And you get it, right? I mean, she's to the point that, except for the name and like, you know, whatever you bring to it, knowledge you have, you know, there are very clear clues in here that Lilith is black, but they're not like, they're not foregrounded. Mm -hmm. At one point she says, she notes that she meets a man and that he had darker skin than I did. And I liked the one moment. It was such a... And this is where I thought you said earlier that you, 
you felt that you didn't think she needed the aliens to make these points that she was making. And I disagree. I felt that she did. And one moment where I thought that worked was when uh, Nikanj was telling her about some dispute that had sprung up between some of the human survivors um, who were conspiring and hating Joseph. And Joseph was Asian. And Nikanj said, no, they've been talking about him. They don't like the shape of his eyes and they don't like that he's with you. Yeah. And it was such a, you know, a sideways way to say they're, you know, they don't like that he's Chinese. Right. So in that way, the, the extra distance that the aliens provided, I thought really worked. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. To, I mean, yeah, so there's so many ways to read it. I like thinking about it in terms of, I mean, 1987 is a long time ago. You're my birth. You're your birth? Mm-hmm. You're 53? <laughs> I'm really bad at math. There are clearly other things in here that seem preoccupations or assumptions of a time and place. That the Soviet Union is... Well, like <laughs> we... I mean, it's very much like, I need to find a way to destroy the world. So that's it. Yeah. We, we could talk a lot about like how worlds are destroyed and what that is. And I accept that as a deus ex machina of like the world being ended. But there's a very clear, and maybe I'm just as reading this as a man, you might not think as much, but there's a clear fear of emasculation amongst the men in like, having to be the passive partner in their sexual relationship with the Yonkali. Similar to the complete absence of the possibility of homosexuality is like the like very certain expectation that most men are going to hate like their position in the sexual relationship with, with the alien, right? I mean, yes. there's Joseph hates it. Like he's like, no, 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 no. Gabriel. Gabe, yeah, the actor, the pretty boy actor. He's the only one really kind of explicit about it. Like, he doesn't want to be in This that. is before the era of the stay-at-home dad. Before the dad bod, too. Before the dad bod. Although, Nikanj kind of has a dad bod. And Nikanj is so gross to me. <laughs> Maybe I just wasn't thinking. Well, because, like, one of them, I think Gabriel says at one point, like, I don't like being used like, quote, like a woman. I mean, and that's not presented ironically. Or, like, with any sort of, like, judgment. Which is fine, because it's 1987, whatever. But I think, yeah, I, think, I think she uses that as a motivation for men. I definitely think there are a lot of... Because at one time, Nikanj brings out the butt plug. And, jo <laughs> and Joseph's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nikanj basically is a butt plug. That's <laughs> true. Okay, let's do the cringe factor. Cringe factor. Cringe factor. So the cover of this book, uh, we have two different colors. But they both feature prominently, or an unclothed black woman. Attractive. Right? Yeah. She's cute. And in both of them, it's her, she's covering her breasts, mm -hmm. and she's surrounded by kind of organic shapes, semi-floral-looking shit. So, what would you give it? How'd you feel reading this? So it said Octavia E. Butler, and she's respectable. She's respectable. I guess she won what a Guggenheim. She won MacArthur. MacArthur. She won a MacArthur Genius Grant. Yeah, yeah. I don't think it's bad at all, right? I actually kind of like the copy we have. It flips nice. Pages are nice. It's got that marginalia. Rape. Are you hard right now? <laughs> um, I like that also on the very first time the alien comes in and then she describes it, the the high schooler wrote next to it, freak. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'm giving this a 1.25 out of 5 on the cringe factor. Not cringe at all. It's a nice deep blue. None of the font screams genre. Um, and it's just kind of like a, a tasteful nude on the front <laughs> of like a sleeping, sleeping naked little girl. She's not a little girl. Stop calling grown women little girls on our show. Who else am I calling little girls? You called Kat a little girl in the last you episode. You know she's basically written like she's six. I would also, I would give this, I mean, for me, I would give this a zero. There's no embarrassment to me. Also, I mean, but a little bit of that is built into the fact that like Octavia Butler is like, the premiere. Did you say? I, th I thought you said in your intro their middle name was Lee. Maybe I did. <laughs> we gotta figure this out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so part of just like living on the streets as I do, like getting everything word of mouth, <laughs> is that sometimes language is distorted, you know? Like, did the cool kid at the end of the block, pushing the good stuff, say Wait. E or Lee. I'm not sure. I think she would forgive me. Oh, aren't we lucky that she's dead <laughs> and we can't find out. We're not that lucky that she's dead. 
We said she was a deeply competent writer. That's true. We. Okay, so zero. I mean, that's kind of impressive. We haven't read a zero yet. Also, we didn't mention this when we were talking about the structure of the book, but I do want to say I really appreciated that she resisted flashbacks. It would have been so easy to give flashbacks. Of her dead children and... Dead children or all the characters and flashbacks to their lives and what they left behind. And I think a lot of that is built into her message of adaptability. Mm -hmm. Like, leave the past behind. It happened, it's gone. Although, I mean, I, I totally agree. Although my favorite section of the book was kind of when she was first put in charge of the nursery and was reading over everyone's, like, CV. I loved that as well. Yeah, that was good. And she was thinking, like, who do I take out? Who's going to be a good human? Who's not going to rape? Spoiler alert, every guy rapes. (laughs) But I did think within that section, it was interesting to see what you look for when you're looking for someone who's going to, like, be cool about, like, being a semi-slave to an alien race and having sex with them. (laughs) It's just a... it creates a different set of how you, priorities. How, how would you, like, what would your dossier have said? Do you think she would have put, taken you out first? Um, oh, completely. It would say... You didn't, you didn't really answer. Would you, you'd be having sex with the, with the aliens, right? Oh, for sure. Okay. I would get over it fast. You would? Yeah. Actually, when I saw them, I think I would get turned on. <laughs> there it is. First sight. As gross as they were. Snake play. <laughs> I actually, I made a big mistake the other night because I was part of a group text message and I know we were sending porn gifts and I knew that one of my friends disliked snakes Mm -hmm. and so I typed in snake porn gif (laughs) and just to let everyone know there are women out there who for money will let a live snake enter their vagina (laughs) you're assuming she did it for money you're right maybe she did it to survive on an alien spaceship I mean I feel like that kind of thing if you're willing to do that like you've committed before money's an option (laughs) You think? Probably not. No way. She shut her eyes. She thought, it's something. It's a sensory arm. Oh, Oh, and the last thing we should mention, um, she's named Lilith, and that has, you know, there's a biblical illusion there. I just don't want to let it go, and I like it. To what is the illusion? Well, uh, it's part of Jewish mythology. All right, let's move on to the... Final portion. Lilith was Adam's first wife before Eve. She wasn't created from his rib. She was created from the same dirt that he was. But she was kicked out of the garden. The stories... So that's not biblical. That's extra biblical. Uh, Well, I guess it's Talmudic. Right. This is... I'm sorry. I I forgot how anti-Semitic you were. (laughs) This has been Breen Scott's anti-Semitic hour. (laughs) Tune in next week. I'm the one who called it biblical. You're the one who's like, oh, you mean that's evil. Um... Okay, basically, she was kicked out of the garden. Some of the stories say because she wanted to be on top during sex, and some of the stories say because she had sex with an archangel and didn't want to fuck Adam. Obviously, Lilith is the one who's like so eager to jump in. (laughs) So what's up, Lightning McQueen? What do you give this? Was that a Cars reference? (laughs) Give me me the rest of your Lilith. That was it. That was it. It was that obviously she fucks the Uncali, Lilith fucked an angel. (laughs) I I need something more. All right, so time to rate this book. Scott, what do you think about Dawn? I think you should go first. We balance quality against enjoyment in this. I would say quality, I thought this book was like an 8.5. I thought this was a good book. Okay. Um, Enjoyment, 7, 6.5. Okay, okay. So I'm going to ultimately give the book a 7.5. 7.5? Yeah. It's nice, okay. We might land up similar, but I'm gonna I'm gonna twist that and think for some of those narrative motivation issues I brought up earlier. I think quality is probably like a seven. In that, like I I like thinking of this in like a broad sense of what types or things she's playing with and the big ideas she's bringing up, and also some of the gender issues that work for me. Although I felt like in the piece by piece of it, the putting it all that together, it was less than its whole. Um, but I did enjoy it on like just a reading. And when I look back on it for like such like for nicely for a sci-fi book, just a small little minor thing. I mean, there weren't, you know, we basically wake up with her. We go through her meeting with these people talking a lot of just talking. I thought the exposition was worked in so well in that it made sense in the story. So I enjoyed it more than I ultimately think that it was, the quality was strong. So, um, you know, 8.5 on enjoyment. And again, but ultimately, just maybe it's my own fault. The central 
tension there I didn't totally buy. Like as we see on page 134, someone basically summarizes the question at the center of this, which is, I don't know whether I should be shedding the constraints of civilization and getting ready to fight for my life or keeping and enhancing them for the sake of humanity's future. Again, so I'm going to give it a 7.5. That's what I gave it. Yeah, we gave it the same score. All right, how about this? This might this might separate us. Are you going to read the second one? Oh, this is a broader thing. I'm No, I'm not. I hate extended narratives. I don't think you understand, though. Understand what? The book that I was reading has all three books in one. So look, I resisted. I read the first line of the second one. And the second one... Um, says, I remember being born. It's from the point of the view of her child. Whoa. And she's not even a character in it. I kind of like that. Yeah, it's totally advanced. It's it's about the hybrids. Once they're on Earth? Yeah. So the brood. Yeah. That bodes well. That bodes well. Maybe we'll read the second one. It's called Adulthood Rights, a terrible title. Right. Well, <laughs> adulthood Rights is bad. I mean, it, it'd probably be nice to read a sequel on this at some point. Yeah, and I think... Um, whether we do it or not for the show, I'm going to read the sequel. All right. Is that a threat? <laughs> it's like a threat, a promise, an invitation into my Uncali's sex orgy. <laughs> exactly. Um, All right. So. But it's hard. Yeah. My, I maybe, maybe I'll save my rant about extended narratives for later. Yeah. And the value of confined. I think there will be books that deserve that rant more than this one. That's true. But maybe it's just, it's more heartfelt here because I was enjoying it. And like, just give me a bow to wrap this up with. I don't want to, I don't want to. Well, honestly, even if, th- I think this could be a standalone. And I think you had your bow. <sighs> yeah, but I want my bow. You had your bow and you wore it in your hair too. <laughs> I want my bow and to eat it too. No, I already <laughs> said wore it in your hair too. All right. Well, there has been Don by Octavia Lee. <laughs> e, I'm sorry. Butler. Tune in next time when do we know what we're reading next time? We do. We are Tune reading Mythago Wood. Mythago Wood. By Ooh. Robert Holdstock. Gonna be good. Ooh, Holdstock? Yeah, what do you think? I don't think that's his last name. Are you sure it's it? <laughs> no, I don't no. know. We'll check back next time to see if we're right. Alright, get ready. Spirits in the woods. I hate you, I hate you, I did it go wrong.